0: Back on the Young Turks, a couple of amazing guests for you guys, so let's get started. Joining me now is Paula Jean Uh She was just a Democrat, running as Joe Manchin last time, a Democratic incumbent. She is now running for the Senate again this time around, this time against a Republican Shelley Moore Capito. So Paula Jean, welcome back to the Young Turks.
1: Hey, how are you doing, Jake?
0: Great to see you, I'm great.
1: Good to be back.
0: Great to have you. So Paula Jean, you were- Uh, Of course, also featured in the documentary Knock Down the House, Uh, that's on Netflix. You're on there with AOC and a couple other just Democrats. Uh, So uh, uh, tell us about this new race. So different obviously than the last time, last time was a Democratic incumbent, this time it's a Republican incumbent. Why did you decide to enter the ring again?
1: Well uh, several different reasons. Um, My state's still struggling and uh, we have to get rid of the political dynasty. Joe Mention and Shelley Moore Capito are not a lot different. They're really good friends. They seem to work on bipartisan policies, but they never seem to benefit us. And I'm expecting my first grandbaby, and I just can't sit idly by in the middle of a movement that we're, that's growing in West Virginia and not do something. A lot of people ask me to run again. and. I decided to step up the plate because I feel like it's an obligation. Um, Shelling more capital, if we want Medicare for all, if we want you know, a living wage, if we wanna actually end the addiction epidemic in West Virginia instead of putting money back into big pharma, then we're gonna have to have a fighter in the Senate. And also, you know, we, we need more rep progressive representatives in the United States Senate. We've got some good progressives in the House. We've got a lot of candidates um, running for House. And yeah, we definitely need some more support, and the votes in the Senate. We need progressive values in this country, and West Virginia definitely needs help.
0: Well, look, there's a hundred reasons why yeah. people should support you for the Senate seat, but among my favorite would be the fact that you and Joe Manchin would be sitting together in the United States Senate.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's needed. I mean, that was one of the big determining factors. We did, you know, we did really well. I was an unknown candidate. My team got 30% of the vote against him, a sitting incumbent. That's more votes against a sitting incumbent in 75 years. But I also got more votes than any Republican on the ballot. And that was, like I said, I didn't have the name recognition. With the film, us campaigning, we've had already over 2,000 volunteers sign up for the campaign. So, you know, who better to serve us than us? Like I said, it's needed, it's wanted, We see candidates all across the state. We have the West Virginia Can't Wait movement. You know, AOC and the rest of us are back in the ring with brand new Congress. We're ready to roll again. We want to make change in this country.
0: But Paula Jean, you know, when you get into Congress, uh, uh, I've been harping on this lately because it's it's really a a significant problem. Uh, What they'll do is they'll say, "Well, look, uh, you don't want to endanger your more conservative Democratic colleagues if you're really progressive and you fight for Green New Deal or Medicare for All." Uh, they might lose their seat in West Virginia, oops. <laughs> so uh, my guess is that argument is not going to be persuasive to you.
1: It's not about partisan politics. People are dying in West Virginia. People are dying an alarming rate of cancer. They're dying because of the addiction epidemic. We don't have true economic developments. Um, I'm ready to fight. I don't care if you're conservative, I don't care if you're progressive. It ain't about the labels. We need real represent you know representatives. You know, like I said before, we are investing in ourselves. We're doing it. You know, we've created a big movement here in West Virginia. We see a movement across the country. People are tired of partisan politics. They're tired of a you know, a government that doesn't serve them. We see that the whole structure is broken. Like I said, who, who better to serve us than us? I know how to balance a checkbook. I'm out there working every day. I've buried my family to coal mining. I know what it's like with a boom and bust economy. I, you know, I live in the middle of the addiction epidemic. Who better to make decisions for us but us? And we have to create that type of structure if we wanna survive in this country.
0: Well, Republicans like Capito would say, what do you mean? The people that are better suited to make the decisions are giant multinational corporations. Know your role. Well, that's her best
1: friends, that's corporations and lobbyists, she's not a people servant. You know, We need real true public servants.
0: So do you know, Paul Jean, what percentage of her donations are small donors versus big donors?
1: She's got over 2 million in her campaign account and less than 2% are individual donations. (laughs) Guys, just
0: think about that for a second. If you live in West Virginia, if only 2% of her contributions are from actual human beings, Mm -hmm. who do you think she serves? So, but Apologine, that goes to the heart of the riddle that is West Virginia. Because it voted for Trump more than 49 other states. There's one other state that gave him a bigger margin, but West Virginia came in number two. Yet it has this popular streak where it loves the teacher strike, which is very progressive. It loves the coal miners sitting on those train tracks saying, I'm not gonna let you sell this coal unless you give us the paychecks that you owe us. And it used to be deeply democratic. so. What in the world is going on in West Virginia?
1: You gotta really understand the political dynamic. We have more registered independents and Democrats in this state than we actually do Republicans. In 2016, Bernie Sanders won all 55 counties. But when it went to the Democratic convention, the superdelegates, Joe Manchin, Belinda Biafor, the chair of the party, our state treasurer, John Perdue, Natalie Tennant, that used to be our secretary of state. All voted against the will of the people, and if you're not, you know, the Democratic Party is supposed to be representing the working class, but they're not representing the working class, and people are are tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. But they also want to feel like their vote matters, and you're not going to motivate motivate people to the polls in the general if you go against the will of the people in the primary. So, I mean, that we have to hold the establishment, Democrat, Republican. Whatever party label they have, we have to hold them accountable and make sure that the will of the people is done and our voices are heard. That's why you see so many people stepping up and running for office across the country is because they're tired of feeling like their votes don't matter. They're tired of voting for the lesser two evils and they wanna be heard.
0: So Paul Jean, what's your main strategy for defeating Capito? Because um, you know she's gonna rely on, hey, I'm with Trump all the time, you guys like Trump, Um, and so. Uh, and as we saw in some races across West Virginia, sometimes that works. So, how do you fight back against that? What is the the message you want to give to West Virginia as to why it can't be capita?
1: We can be Capito because we're organizers, we know we know how to survive here in West Virginia. I, during my campaign, I've seen so many people on the front lines solving the problems with the addiction epidemic, talking about economic development. They were in food kitchens, they're working in food banks. You know, we This is one of the sickest and poorest states in the nation. And the people on the front lines have been organizing like the teacher strike, like the West Virginia can't wait movement. We can do it because we have people power. You have to, you know, it's name recognition. People have to know your name. Individuals that are running for office, it resonates because, like I said, who better to serve us than us? And we're just organizing. That's what we're going to do. We got 30% of the vote against Joe Manchin and Shelley Moore Capito. I challenge her not to take corporate and corporate PAC money, to sign the West Virginia Can't Wait page And I'd like to see her face me, coal miner's daughter, woman to woman, beat me without all that corporate and corporate PAC money, quit serving lobbyists, and let's have a real election. But with or without her, we're organizing. Like I said, we have already over 2,000 volunteers signed up to work on this campaign, and we have people across the state that are ordinary individuals that's gonna run for office, win or lose. We're changing the narrative, we're gonna hold them accountable, but we're also organizing and making sure that our voices are heard and they're gonna start making decisions for us, win or lose.
0: All right, and so by the way, 2,000 volunteers is a lot of volunteers in West yeah, Virginia. So it's,
1: it's been amazing, it's yeah. been amazing.
0: So that's a great job of organizing. Paul Jean, what are the main policy positions that you're gonna run on in West Virginia?
1: I'm running for Medicare for All. Um, you know, well, we need a good economic, diverse infrastructure. We have to invest in our schools, our roads. We have to have clean water, clean sewage systems so we can invite more business to West Virginia. One of the things that I did during my last campaign, and I didn't advertise it a lot, I just I went in and talked to a lot of leaders with the addiction epidemic. And what we've seen a lot, and Shelley Moore Capito and Joe Manchin have been pitching it together. Drug replacement therapy plays a role in ending the addiction epidemic, but what has worked the most is we have people that that have created these long-term recovery systems. And we should have them on every corner of the state, but we don't. They're underfunded, they are not they're, they don't have the support of medical providers. They don't have support of social workers. And like I said, all the money that comes in to end the addiction epidemic goes right back into the pharmaceutical company. We need to support those systems. We need to make sure they're funded and we need to make sure that we have one on every corner to combat this epidemic. And also go against big pharma and make sure they don't ship pills to the capacity that they have in, in their communities like they have. It's just, it's like from the bottom up and the top down. The whole problem is the whole structure. It don't work because big corporations, big pharma, all those systems are putting money in the pocketbooks of our politicians they are not putting money back into our communities. And so that's what we need to do is we need to create a structure, put in legislation that you know we need to put money into states like mine to restructure the economy, not just gas, not just coal. We need a diverse their economy, like solar, wind, hemp. There's all kinds of things. The you know the um, possibilities are endless. We just need visionaries for our future, and not visionaries for our demise, and, and visionaries for their own pocketbooks. There so there's so many things. But the main thing, like our teachers were, you know, our teachers were on strike because they wanted health care. Why can't we have Medicare for all? I'm a I'm a full supporter of Medicare for all. Yep. Um it's pretty much like a universal health care system in West Virginia now. If you look at how many people are on Medicaid and how many people are on Medicare, you'd see already that it's already coming out of our tax dollars to give people health care in West Virginia. And small businesses are having a hard time surviving after the ACA because they're paying high premiums. If they don't have to pay high premiums into health insurance, then they can put that money back into their business and they can play their employees a lot better. Yep. Like I said, the possibilities are endless. We just we just need people, like I said, in the front lines of our communities. People have been there, they live it every day, talking to the other leaders that are in the front lines of our communities, and let's all keep continue solving our problems and working together. And that's not what's happening now.
0: All right. Paula Jean is back, everybody. Paulagine. Paula <laughs> <Jean>. <laughs> Paul Jean. Com. Uh, we'll have the link to donate, uh, and the website, you can volunteer through it as well. That's, that'll be in the description box, as always. Paul Gene Swergen, run for US Senate in 2020. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Always. Okay, uh, guys, when we come back, Edward Snowden. Now, there's a whistleblower in the news today. Uh, we have the whistleblower of wall whistleblowers. Uh, he will comment on that story, as well as his new book. So don't miss this. When we return, all right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now, legendary whistleblower, president of the board of directors of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, and American hero Edward Snowden. Uh, Edward, (laughs) (laughs) uh, good to have you on the Young Turks. Um, Thank you, Jack. It's good to be here. No problem. First question is Hey, where are you? (laughs)
2: I'm in my apartment in (laughs) Moscow, Uh, it's about uh, 3.20 in the morning here, and I haven't slept yet.
0: Okay, well, thanks for coming on, I appreciate it. Uh, Seriously, um, boy, what a day to have you on, uh, because right now we're in the middle of a controversy where a whistleblower has uh, gone through the exact right procedures uh, and reported that there is a matter of urgent concern where the American president made a promise to a foreign country. And uh, the administration will not allow them to explain uh, what they did wrong. So uh, as a whistleblower and and someone who was harangued for not going through the right procedure, what is your take on that?
2: Well, I think what we need to remember here is this is actually extraordinarily standard. This is what every White House does. Um, whenever they are accused of some wrongdoing, whenever there is some uh, allegation of criminal or unconstitutional behavior, uh, of uh, violations of human rights, or even basic waste, fraud, and abuse, anything that implicates uh, the structure of power itself, uh, particularly prominent officials, uh, what they try to do uh, is they try to recontextualize the conversation. Uh, They try to make the controversy uh, about the source of the allegation, that is the whistleblower, uh, rather than the allegation itself, um, and I think what we need to remember, um, not just as a a public but as a broader global society, because this is uh, an issue that's not just uh, in the United States; it's everywhere. Um, is the provenance of the allegation is never what matters. Uh, it's the proof. Uh, that is offered for it to assess whether or not it's actually true, right? Our feelings about the controversy have to matter less than than the facts of it. And whenever we see this kind of shoot-the-messenger tactic uh, occurring, we need to think, uh, what can we do to stop this? Um, we've got to test the facts, not the people behind them.
0: So do you feel some vindication uh, that what you did was The right way to release the information that you had, given that what everybody told you about, oh, if you just followed procedure, would have gotten out anyway, (laughs) doesn't seem to have worked in this particular case in the Trump administration.
2: Well I mean, this hasn't happened, it hasn't worked since the 1970s with Daniel Ellsberg. Um, you know, we saw this in the case of Thomas Drake in the early 2000s, uh, Thomas Tan at the Department of Justice talking about the Bush era warrantless wiretapping uh, program. In every case, the whistleblower faces prosecution or investigation. Uh, Thomas Drake who was a senior NSA executive, lost his house, lost his career, eventually lost his wife. Uh, now he works in an Apple store. Um, and this is what uh, his reward was for telling the public uh, that the United States government uh, was violating the rights of everyone in the country. Um, the fact that we are still having the same conversation, you know, 10 years later, 40 years later, um, is an indication that this, again, it's not about a particular administration. It's about a broken system of power and through that, really, the instrumentalization of a system of not justice but but injustice uh, any democracy, <laughs> you know, this. Sorry, I get a little amped up when I talk about this, but we have this uh, single bottom line basis for for every government after every election in, in every country, which is uh, a democratic government derives its legitimacy from the consent of the governed, <laughs> at least theoretically. Um, but that consent is only meaningful if it's informed, and we have had government after government lying to us. And this has never been more clear, uh, I think, than now. Because at least in prior governments, uh, they have at least had the decency uh, to be artful in their lies.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about whether it got worse. Because uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, didn't have to go into hiding. Uh, He didn't have to go to prison. uh, And uh, for releasing the Pentagon Papers. But now, as you pointed out, Thomas Drake is working in an Apple store. You're in hiding in Moscow. And, uh, and uh, it happened under both uh, Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. People like to say that Donald Trump is particularly lawless, and there's a good record for that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not like the Obama administration uh, was any more understanding of people trying to expose the things that the powerful were doing wrong.
2: Well, And at least to this point, it's actually uh, it was worse under the Obama administration, not by my counting, but by the government's own. Uh, The Obama administration brought more charges against sources of journalism under the Espionage Act, which affords no defense. Uh, It sort of denies uh, those accused of access to a fair trial uh, than all other presidents combined. Uh, And actually, we have some of those cases uh, now under the current White House. We have Daniel Hale. Uh, who is a whistleblower who provided documents about the U.S. drone program, extrajudicial killings, right? Um, This is where people are actually being (laughs) uh, killed, often far from any battlefield. Uh, In some cases, actually American citizens, such as the case of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki and uh, his his son, who was, I think, actually 15, 16 years old uh, when he was killed. We have, of course, reality winner who's in prison now. She got 63 months for a single document, which, by the way, uh, was about the NSA's assessment that the Russians were targeting electoral interference uh, or electoral infrastructure, I mean, you would think the media really would have uh, defended her, but in fact, they—they, they, the, the corporate media, at least—they—they um, they disappeared. They just evaporated when this story hit the headlines. Uh, we have Terry Albury, who revealed documents about uh, the FBI uh, sort of manipulation and exploitation of uh, minority communities uh, for for human sourcing, and it goes back and back and back. Uh, You mentioned Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg is actually one of the people who said uh, if he was a whistleblower coming forward today, um, he would not stay in the United States because our laws have changed, our system has changed. But even in the idea that Daniel Ellsberg sort of walked, he didn't have to go into hiding, is actually historically inaccurate. Um, he's he's a friend of mine now. Uh, we, we've met in person and we uh, both serve on the board at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, and he told me uh, not only did he go into hiding for a very long time during the point uh, period of reporting, uh, eventually he did face uh, the same exact charges that I was facing but they let him out on bail and he got to talk to the media you know it's stuff that you can't even imagine nowadays for a whistleblower and the only reason he walked he said he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison um is because the nixon administration was so particularly lawless something that uh, again never really changes uh that they went so far, so egregiously, that the court itself had to flush the case. Because the Nixon administration had been offering, for example, the judge that was over the case, if the judge could basically convict Ellsberg and wipe this off the plate very quickly, the judge might be qualified to be the next director of the FBI, which had been a lifelong dream of this person. The Nixon administration knew it. They broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office looking for uh, evidence to discredit him. Um, And Ellsberg also told me uh, that when he was out, uh, there were uh, CIA documents that were later uh, made available to him uh, through FOIA requests and things like that um, that said uh, the administration had brought up uh, people who had been involved in the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, invasion And they had been brought to a protest that Ellsberg was going to be at with orders to, quote from the documents, incapacitate him totally, which he told me at the time was a common euphemism, obviously, for just killing someone. So governments have never been friendly in the context of whistleblowers. And it's sad, honestly. It's simply sad that all these years later, when we have so many examples uh, of the necessity of journalists having access to sources uh, of real material facts inside the government. Uh, these sources then being not, not prosecuted, but in fact persecuted for it. Because uh, what this means is we're building a system uh, that steadily over time uh, produces more of these cases where, where the incentives are clear. Uh, whistleblowers will not be available when we need them the most because to blow the whistle is to light a match and uh, sort of burn your life to the ground. You have to believe um, that the public needs to know uh, the things that you're revealing more than you need to be free.
0: So that brings us to your book, Permanent Record. It's your autobiography. And let let me you said burn your life to the ground. Do you think that's basically what's happened to you? Has your life been burnt to the ground because of the way the American government has treated you? Uh, Yeah.
2: And I mean, this is, uh, (laughs) again, like I said, there's a long history for this. The the thing that um, I'm quite, I feel quite fortunate about is I knew what was coming. Um, If you watch Citizen Four, the documentary from uh, 2013 when I came forward, uh, they, they asked me on camera, you know, what what's going to happen before any of this happened? And I said, oh, they're going to say, you know, I'm a traitor. They're going to say I endangered lives. They're going to say I harm national security. Uh, they're going to charge me under the Espionage Act. And it's not because this is, a, you know, I'm particularly insightful. It's because they always do this. Um, so I knew the consequences I was likely to face. And I thought I was actually going to spend the rest of my life in prison, as Ellsberg did, because that's the likeliest outcome. Um, but... I'm still here and I'm still speaking Uh, and uh, sort of the old bad tools of political repression. uh, Things like exile are beginning to fail uh, because of technology. And one of the interesting things behind this book and my story uh, is showing that um, it's much more difficult today uh, to silence inconvenient voices no matter what you do. Uh, The government, in fact, uh, sued both myself and the publisher of this book a permanent record on day one of its availability, but that's only made more people want to read it.
0: Do you miss America?
2: Of course. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, it'll, would, it'll yeah. always be my 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 intention to to come back.
0: So, um, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say. Look, obviously, it's taking an unreal toll on your life. You know. Uh, You don't live in your homeland uh, next to your family and friends and all the people that you've ever known, uh, and you're in exile. uh, And given that, look, it worked in the sense that you got us absolutely critical information. But it didn't work in the sense that the government didn't change. Uh, And so did you have any regrets given that it didn't work?
2: No. Um, and this, this is a common question, and I, I think it's an important one, but it, this is where it's so central to understand uh, what the act of whistleblowing is about. Um, I didn't come forward to change the laws. Uh, I didn't come forward to uh, burn down the NSA, <laughs> and I wanted to do that. Um, I could have done it in an afternoon because of my technical accesses. I, I had a lot of influence uh, on the network. Um, I came forward uh, to provide people the facts that I believe they needed to know uh, in order to understand what's going on in the world what their government is doing both in their name uh, and against them and from this we can have a more informed uh, kind of society uh, and you know a lot of this sounds very abstract and people are like yeah that's great nobody really cares uh, but that that's not actually true uh, and this is this is one of the things that actually is quite topical to the controversies that we're we're having today Um Prior to 2013, there was evidence that the government could be engaging in a program of mass surveillance. During the Bush era, in the December of 2005, of course, the warrantless wiretapping program was revealed in the New York Times. And the sad reality is the New York Times had this story and they were ready to publish it right before Bush's re-election in October of that election year. But they sat on it. At the request of the White House, and they only ran it when the journalists uh, who had uncovered the story uh, had finished books. And then the newspaper is about to be scooped by their own journalists. Uh, And so out of fear of looking, uh, well, like like what they were, um, they ran the story and it was, you know, a a big scandal. But the Bush White House said, OK, we shouldn't have been doing this, uh, you know, slap on the wrist. And they said, we shut this program down and we're going to pass a new law to do new structures What actually happened was they shut half of the program down. And uh, the other half, uh, the the half they shut down, they renamed the Terrorist Surveillance Program, um, because publicly that would sound very nice, you know, and it would be hard for anyone to criticize it. The other half, they continued secretly renaming it the President's Surveillance Program. That morphed and continued and expanded and became a larger system of mass surveillance, which we were dealing with today, and that's uh, essentially what the disclosures of, of 2013 Um, were about, but uh, as I said, there were still indications. There were uh, court cases. In fact, one, Amnesty versus Clapper, uh, got flushed uh, just uh, three or four months before I came forward. Uh, And this this is all part of a continuum, right? So there was an expert class, there were researchers, there were technologists who knew this kind of thing could be happening, and maybe in some ways it, it was happening, but no one could prove it. And so everyone who was discussing it had to deal with it as uh, speculation, right? It was a kind of conspiracy theory. What 2013 did, more than changing the laws, which it did, more than any programs, which it did, um, more than uh, changing the basic underlying uh, security infrastructure of the Internet, which it did. We live in both a safer and freer society as a result of these disclosures. Um, It transformed speculation into fact, Everyone could start making decisions, could start casting votes, could start reengineering systems, could start proposing legislation on the basis of a common understanding. And this is what we've been missing over these last couple of years, because the entire political winds, the entire way we engage with each other has changed such that the, your feelings about an issue have become more central and more important in the debate than the actual facts. And this is lethal to a democracy, because if we cannot agree on what is happening, how can we have a conversation uh, on what we should do about it? And so these new people coming forward, uh, if they have facts and they can prove these allegations and we can transform these things from speculation of wrongdoing to evidence of wrongdoing, Uh, that's absolutely vital. And the fact that we see power once again uh, trying to prevent. Uh, The public gaining access to essential facts uh, that are really the only thing that allow uh, we, the people, to hold the leash of government uh, rather than being the ones that are being leashed, right? Uh, We're supposed to be partner to government rather than subject to it. Um, What we are being robbed of is is not just our our, our, our civic power. Um, It is our ability, our agency, uh, to determine our own futures, Uh, We are being subordinated to a system uh, rather than directing that system. And the way that changes is not people in agencies deciding, you know, I'm the the, the president of secrets for the day, Um, uh, saying this is the way the law should be. This is what I believe. Uh, It's engaging as part of a larger system. Now, there are all these arguments about proper channels and things like that. We've seen historically they don't work. Uh, We're seeing right now the kind of opposition they face. Uh, But I think we also have journalists now understanding uh, more centrally, if they don't contest the government's monopoly on information, no one else will. This is why we have freedom of the press. This is why the Fourth Estate is so central in free and open societies. Um, And I think this is actually something that, despite all the challenges it's facing, despite all the attacks that are being leveled at it, uh, we still in the United States believe in. Not everyone, not uh, universally, but enough of it, uh, enough of us, uh, that so long as these values survive, uh, I think we will survive uh, as a country. And when we lose our commitment to those values, which is one of the reasons that I wrote this book, is I feel that there is a mood changing where uh, these values are increasingly coming under threat, not just in the United States, but many advanced democracies. Uh, But we need to have this conversation, we need to stand and defend uh, not just the things that we say and feel right now, um, but the rights and freedoms that we inherited. Because it can happen here and we can lose them very quickly.
0: So uh, look, I don't want people to get what I'm saying wrong. I think that what you uh, did was incredibly helpful to our uh, open society and democracy. The information alone uh, makes a giant difference. And, and that's why New York Times not only held the story that you're talking about before the 2004 election, they also held the story about how the Bush administration had Bin Laden cornered in Tora Bora and let him go. It was an amazing, groundbreaking story, and they did not share that incredibly valuable information with the electorate. They made a deeply political decision to protect the Bush administration and print it after the election. So it happens over and over again. So right now, they're fighting back against the Trump administration cuz he's not part of the normal establishment. And so I'm heartened to see that, I'm happy to see it. But unfortunately, I'm not sure that it's gonna last if another establishment (laughs) politician gets back into office. So I did wanna ask you as a follow up though, obviously you told us what the NSA was doing for a fact back then. Uh, what's your sense right now as to how much those surveillance programs are continuing?
2: Oh, they're all continuing. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that, that's that's what people don't uh, don't really understand and appreciate in large part. Um, so, in uh, June of 2013, when I came forward, uh, you've got Barack Obama in front of the White House podium, um, looking very dissatisfied because he's in the hot seat. And he says, uh, you know, no, I don't think Mr. Snowden's a patriot. You know, there's other things he could have done and all these typical sort of things. Uh, There's no way to have uh, perfect security and perfect privacy. Uh, So he's basically saying, don't worry so much about the Fourth Amendment. Just trust us. Uh, These powers are great. They're keeping people safe. Uh, As the stories and reporting continued on. Um, As he appointed, uh, to his credit, two different independent commissions to study whether these programs were effective or not, it turned out they weren't saving lives. Uh, Despite more than 10 years of operation, the very first program that was studied, Section 215 of the Patriot Act, this is the uh, legal authority that was um, underpinning the mass collection, right? Indiscriminate, untargeted. Doesn't matter whether it's your grandmother, the most innocent person in the world, uh, or an actual terrorist everybody's communications are being collected all the time. Your phone records, right, are being delivered by Verizon to the NSA every single day. And the only court order that ever heard or the only court that ever heard anything about this was the secret FISA court, um, which over 33 years uh, was asked 33,900 times by the government uh, to approve surveillance. And in 33 years and 33,900 times, uh, the uh Court only told the government no 11 times. Um, So they are very much a rubber stamp. And this is the only kind of authorization uh, that happened. Now, uh, after it came out that these programs weren't saving lives and the government's own words had never made a concrete difference in a single counterterrorism investigation, uh, January of 2014, Obama says, "While he could never condone what he did. This conversation made us stronger as a nation. Uh, He uh, proposes that we end this particular program. Uh, We pass the USA Freedom Act, which forbids the NSA from engaging in this program in this way. But then they just say, well, we're going to do the same exact kind of thing. We're just going to have the phone companies hold the records and then the NSA get a warrant and give it to the phone companies, which is still a big improvement. Uh, But they're still going to have a mass database, uh, perfect records of all of our private lives. Uh, and this this uh, kind of uh, permanent history on everyone that's being created for everything we do, everywhere you go, all of your cell phone movements are being tracked. Even if you have location services off on your phone, just by virtue of the way the technologies work, your phone is constantly screaming in the air, here I am, here I am. And every cell phone tower you pass is making a note and saying, I saw this phone at this time. They've got the billing information, so they know it belongs to this person. They pay for it with this card. They at this address. Uh, and... Again, uh, these things aren't going away. AT&T has been uh, keeping those records just for location going back to 2008. Uh, They're keeping your phone records, everyone you called, going back to 1987. So if you're born after 1987, they have every phone call you ever made on their network. Um, But there there were reforms, there were changes, but then they just roll over authorities. They do these in new ways. They say, all right, we're going to not do it this way. That's exceptionally unconstitutional. We'll do it a little bit differently. I think it's Kissinger who said, the illegal we do immediately. The unconstitutional takes a little bit longer. <laughs> um, so these the, these kind of programs are continuing and they, they will continue. And this is the thing. Even if it's not illegal, even if it's not unconstitutional, that doesn't make it okay. Uh, destroying the right to privacy is a fundamental violation, not just of constitutional rights, but of human rights, the construction of these systems themselves, is the abuse. Um, And and so I I think what we need to remember is that sometimes the scandal is not how they're breaking the law. The scandal is that they don't need
0: to. Mm, Yeah. All right. uh, Last question, Edward. Um, So uh, just for a layman uh, to understand, uh, could the government- uh, find out all the things that people are looking online at. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I know it's a funny question, but it's it's the thing that probably most people are concerned about, uh, and and I, and I want people uh, to be able to know uh, in your estimation what the answer is. Yeah. Uh,
2: so I I just read an article that was a nice little summary of some of the things that we learned in 2013. Um, from uh, one of the country's most prominent professors of cryptography at Johns Hopkins University. His name is uh, Matthew Green. Um, And uh, it was a nice little trip down memory lane for me, um, because the most essential thing, uh, if you remember anything about 2013, what it was about, and one of the key stories in Permanent Record, which is, yes, a memoir of of my life, but more broadly— this change in technology, in surveillance, and unfortunately, the character and values of the U.S. intelligence community in in the wake of 9-11, is they shifted from uh, what historically had been targeted surveillance, right? They go, uh, we believe this phone line or this uh, satellite truck or uh, this uh, building is associated with you know, the 3rd the, the Russian Rocket Division, you know, or um, the 2nd the People's Liberation Army in, you know, uh, China, or a Ministry of State Security uh, Unit. Or uh, it's Osama bin Laden's, right? They, they had a specific person in mind when they were going after this, and there was a specific ap- operation to go after a specific flow of communications. The advance of technology, Uh, And the rise of the uh, sort of corporate and competitive Internet of the modern day rather than the cooperative and creative Internet of the 1990s and and previous era um, meant that now, instead of watching certain people, because that's all they could do because it was expensive and difficult, now they could try to watch everyone, everywhere, everywhere all the time. This is mass surveillance. The government euphemizes it as bulk collection. If you ever hear the words bulk collection, it just means mass surveillance. Um, And and what this means is, uh, and this is covered in great detail in the book if if people are interested in it, Um, the government doesn't have to spy on you to intercept your communications because they're getting everyone's communications. When you have a phone and it's screaming out in the air, right? It's constantly all those nice things that you like. Think about how it is that they get to your phone. Think about how it is when someone dials your phone number. Only your phone rings. No other phones in the world rings. How does that work, right? The phone network has to know where every phone is at all times and which ones have which numbers in order to make them ring. When you request something you know, from Facebook, from YouTube, this traffic stream, this uh, video that you're watching right now has to go out to a server. Your phone says, can anyone get me this? And a lot of middlemen have to go say, does anyone have this thing that someone's requesting? And then eventually it gets to the server. The server says, I have this file. And then it gets passed all the way back over the internet. All of those middlemen, any one of them, can make a note of that. And they can either hold on to that as long as they want, or they can go, oh, it's not important. I'm going to toss it away. It used to be that these records... Aged off. The things that we did online were forgotten um, because there was seemed to be no value in them and they, they took up space. They were clutter. Uh, now, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's the NSA, right? Whether it's North Korea, whether it's China, Russia, uh, Iran, whoever you don't like, um, they can hold on to this data for basically as long as they want. And increasingly, as technology makes storage more and more capable, uh, The amount, the length of time for which these records are held approaches something close to forever. Again, remember, AT&T is holding phone records for all of their customers going back to 1987. This kind of data, not what you said in the call, but the fact that you made the call, when the call happened, who you called, where you called them from, this is called metadata, which means data about data. But you can think of it more clearly as activity records. Not the content of the call, the fact that it happened, Uh, not the article that you retrieved from website, but the fact that you connected to that website from this place using that phone at this time. Uh, And if you know what kind of websites people are connecting to, if you know someone, for example, watches the Young Turks, you can infer a lot about their politics. But this metadata is incredibly tiny. It's very easy to store. It's very easy to process by machines. And this is what's so toxic about this change towards mass surveillance from targeted surveillance. The content of communications, which under U.S. law has more legal protections, is less interesting today to intelligence services than the metadata and your activity records, right? Um, Because when you're talking to someone on the phone, You can be discreet. You can talk around something. You can use a code word. You can lie. And everyone lies, even to people that they love uh, when you're sitting in the surveillance chair, right, listening to the world's communications. When you send an email, when you write something, uh, when you tell someone something, you are uh, intentionally sharing this information. You're thinking about it. You're aware that this data does exist somewhere. You're aware someone else is going to hear this. So you think about these things. But metadata, these activity records are often created without your awareness, without your consent, without your participation. It just happens invisibly because our devices are creating them all the time. Your phone, uh, as soon as you finish watching this screen, you put the, you know, you you click the power button. The phone doesn't turn off, but the screen powers down. You put it in your pocket and you go on about your day. Uh, That phone, while it's silent and just sitting there riding along with you, is still active talking to companies, talking to governments tens, hundreds, thousands of times a minute, depending on how many apps you have installed. You have no idea what it's saying, but it's constantly creating records that are invisible to you. This is the new pollution. And just like with the last century, we had a pollution problem that we did not come to terms with for a very long time because we could not see the consequences. Silicon Valley uh, and these institutional power structures today are intentionally creating a system that conceals the consequences of the systems and devices that we are interacting with for as long as possible, right? Uh, Through this kind of frictionless design where you just click an I agree button and it's presumed that everyone understands what they're getting into. But you didn't read it. I didn't read it. None of us read it. And it doesn't matter even if you did because the first part of the terms of service say these companies can change those terms at any time even without notifying you. But they're entitling themselves to the permanent record of everything you've ever done, and it no longer
0: belongs to you. That is a very dangerous thing. All right, and the book is called Permanent Record. Uh, Edward Snowden, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us on The Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Stay free. And uh, thank you for your service to the country as well. Um, all right, we are gonna take a quick break. For the members, we're gonna come back, do a couple things, anna has got a fun story for you guys about some sort of centipede. And we're also gonna show you Fox News beginning to turn on Donald Trump, Ooh, drama, tyt.com slash join to get that portion of the Young Turks, plus Old School tonight with Gary Goleman and Brett Ehrlich. So uh, that starts a little bit later now because of how long the Stone interview took. Uh, But we'll be right back for the members.